And in New York, your station for news as it happens. And Gene Shepard is next, right here on WOR. Get, the, get that music ready for me there, Tony. One, two, three. Oh, thank God it's Friday. We have made it again. And thank God it's Friday. The weekend is coming up. It looks like it's going to make it all the way, all the way. We are going to swing all the way this weekend. Thank God it's Friday. I always say that every week. Thank God it's Friday. Da, 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 da. Could you, uh, on that same disc there, you will find El Capitan. That's a fantastic Jews' Art number. Oh, incidentally, uh, 
Now, for those of you who uh, like to keep abreast with the various cultural developments in our time, we would like to tonight uh, salute Atlantic City. City officials have unveiled a plaque on the boardwalk at Park Place. Now, you, you know what this means to you, the boardwalk at Atlantic City, right? Manalope, you've all played the game. Park Place, right? Ventnor Avenue, right? Well, they've uh, unveiled a plaque <laughs> at that point because it commemorates Monopoly, which is the world's most popular game. Believe it or not, according to the note we have here, first worked out by Shore Resort visitor. There was a guy visiting Atlantic City when he invented Monopoly. Now, the reason I use the word now, don't immediately call up and say, Dear Mr. Shepard, the word is Monopoly. No, it is not. In my lexicon, the word is Monopoly. You can't, you, no, you just can't change your old traditions. And the reason I call it monolopy is because this friend of mine in shop, when I was in school, we had shop. Did you ever take shop in school? Oh, yeah. I know a guy that made a, a lampshade out of his thumb in the <laughs> in shop, you know, on a lathe. Oh, man. But uh, that's neither here nor there. Uh, in our shop, we had this this kid, Bolas, who was in our neighborhood. And Bolas, he, uh, Bolas Rakowski. And old Bo, uh, he, he uh, was making this great Monopoly board, inlaid, you know, beautiful. And uh, it was made out of walnut, and it had the teak wood in it, and birch, and all beautiful wood, you see. And he made, you know where they had, they had the railroads? He made this little train, and uh, <laughs> where it said that he made little teak wood hotels that you could get and all that stuff. Made his, his own Monopoly board, and the first day we were to use it, Geza sitting there. Geza Nemeth, my friend, the Hungarian. Oh, Geza says, oh, he says, Adam Tudum Tashik. And the bullet says, I Aksumash. And, you know, it was a very international crowd I was hanging around with, and Schwartz is sitting there and chewing on a little red cabbage. And, uh, Geza uh, <laughs> says, it doesn't look right. And we're playing in this beautiful Monopoly board, and it suddenly hit us. He had spelled it Monolopy, inlaid. One does not do an inlaid board over, does one, Tony? By the way, he got a B minus because he misspelled Monopoly. And so uh, we, it was much easier for us to change the name of the game than to change the board. So from that day on, we played Monopoly in the crowd. So they're now celebrating this thing. Uh, this guy who was visiting the, he was visiting Atlantic City, Charles B. Barrow. And he's looking out of the window of this hotel, and he sees the names of these streets, an event near Park Place, Boardwalk. And uh, he just happened to use those names. Just thought they'd be good names. And since that time, this has become the Vatican of games players. People travel from all over the world to go to see Park Place and Ventnor, those various other streets. There have been at least 60 million of the games, and it's in seven different languages. You ought to see what uh, Monopoly comes out to be in Urdu. It's an exciting game in Urdu. Uh, yeah, you know, it says uh, your your uncle has just gone to jail, pay two hundred dollar fine, and you know, that stuff. So, if you will, please, Tony, we'd like to work on a solar Atlantic City in no place. Hooray for Ventnor, hooray for the waterworks, hooray for the railroad and all the hotels, hooray for Park Place, hooray for Boardwalk, hooray for Monopoly, the game that everybody, everybody plays. Nobody ever ends a game, they go on for years, hooray for Monopoly, hooray for Monopoly. Where's my, uh... All right, I'm going to use my, uh, my good juice, Harvard.
one, two, three. That's enough. That's enough, Tony. Thank you. Kimo Sabi. Uh-oh. I made a mistake. I want to erase that. I did not say Kimo Sabi. Did you know that that is copyrighted? Did you know that you cannot say Kimo Sabi without approval of the copyright owners? You remember we used to say that? That's right. Tonto. And do you remember... Uh, the, the line that uh, the Long Range used to say all the time, remember, Tonto, the law is on our side. Remember that? Can't say that either, even if you're a cop. Because <laughs> did you know that that is copyrighted? Well, I'll tell you. You don't know, I, did you see the ad in the Wall Street Journal? I don't often see ads in the Wall Street Journal, but some guy sent it to me. And here's an ad that shows the Long Ranger sitting on his beautiful white horse, Silver. And there is Tonto sitting on his horse. How many of you know the name of Tonto's horse? Okay. And uh, <laughs> that's what I thought. What's that, Victor? No, no, that's not it. What? You don't remember the name of Tonto's horse? Anyway, the two of them are sitting there, see, and you see the Lone Ranger. He's looking. He's got his mask on. He's looking, you know, very, very uh, clean-limbed and uh, dynamic. He's about to assuage the ills of the, you know, the sheep herder whose daughter is being held uh, in ransom by the bad guys. And he says, remember, Tonto, the law is on our side. And Tonto's looking very faithful. And uh, underneath it, it says, we should let everyone know that the Rather Corporation owns the Lone Ranger and that his name, his likeness, and certain characters and expressions associated with him. For example, I.O. Silver and Kimo Sabi cannot be used without our permission. And we won't tolerate any rustlers. Rather Corporation the company behind the man, behind the mask. Boom. <laughs> huh? What? Scout. Oh, yeah, that's neighbor. Well, you can't say that. That's that's copyrighted. Oh, no. Now, that reminds me, you know, here, here you know, you can, you, I never knew you could copyright phrases that characters use. I wonder if anybody has copyrighted, ho, 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 you know, Santa Claus's phrase. <laughs> Or Merry Christmas, everyone! Ho, ho, ho! And there's a little asterisk. It says, not to be used without permission of the copyright owners. The guy writes me a letter. He says, Shepard, he says, this boggles my mind. He says, please tell me, Shepard, since you know everything, how can I get a patent on some of the great expressions my first sergeant had a habit of coming up with? Well, I'm thinking of patenting the one that old, Co <laughs> old Co <laughs> Kowalski used to use. I'll tell you, I don't know whether, you know, I never, I never could tell whether my first sergeant that I had in Company K was playing a scene, in other words, whether, was he playing first sergeant, was he really that way, or had he seen a lot of movies, you know, starring Wallace Beery, and Wallace Beery was always a first sergeant, he did a lot of movies like that, because he used to walk around in front of us when we were all assembled, and uh, he's got on his sunglasses, you know, very sharp looking guy, and uh, yeah, oh yeah, Beautiful. He used to he used to spend hours making sure that the crease in his shirts split his first sergeant's stripes right down the middle. You know that was very important. <laughs> and you see the first sergeant stripes. They they on on old Kowalski since Kowalski was five feet three, he's like a little uh, fire plug with feet. See when uh, when Kowalski when he had those stripes on, you know they would go all the way from the top of his right up to you know by the shoulder, all the way down to his elbow. And they were beautiful. He had these magnificent stripes. And, of course, he had hash marks and all kinds of little ding-dongs hanging all over his shirts. And 
you would make sure that when they were pressed, that they split those stripes right down the middle, man. And he used to be you know, pressing those shirts all the time. And Kowalski would walk around in front of us, the stripes shining. And he never even sweat. I mean, there's a certain kind of guy who wears suntan so beautifully. They were all starched. And he would make sure they were all beautifully, uh, uh, nicely bleached. You know, new suntans. <laughs> they were almost white, magnificent suntans. And he had them all cut down and had them tucked in at the waist. They had them all very sharp. He had this, this belt. Uh, that's one of the great the GI hobbies, in case you don't know about the GI hobbies, is to keep scrubbing your belt and the john and the latrine. And you do it with GI soap, and you put it out in the sun. And if you, you're with the soap all over it. You've done this, Tony. And uh, when the sun beats down and dries the soap on it, it, uh, it bleaches the belt until it gets to be a very attractive, almost an off-white, you see, instead of that khaki. And you polish the buckle. So here's old Kowalski walking around. He's a very epitome of spit and polish. Magnificent. Has his hat pulled on. He's got the orange Sigma Corps braid. And his hat is, is starched. And he walks around with a clipboard. And every morning, the first word out of his mouth, out of his mouth after he's hollered attention, pulling your gut and stuff like that, he walks around, he says, rattles the orders of the day. This is his opening line every morning. Men's... That's a beautiful phrase that catches it. Men's... I wish I could... Maybe I can copyright that. Make it the... <laughs> attribute it to Kowalski. Uh, speaking of uh, nobody else, no other radio station in the world can say this is WOR New York. Outside us, right? We're the only one. And one of the things that WOR does so well, it turns out commercials by the millions. Hit the bing-bang button. Money, Brian's Daughter is one of the most satisfying films of the year. Just classic in its structure and universal in its humanity, says Judith Christ in New York Magazine. She knows a masterpiece. David Lean is a genius. His artistic achievements reach the apex in Ryan's Daughter. A beautiful picture for stars, says Wanda Hale in the New York Daily News. David Lean is an artist, a giant, a magnificent filmmaker. Bernard Drew, Gannett News Service. Ryan's Daughter is a major event in the history of the movies. David Lean's direction is a reminder of the days when movies were works of art. Ryan's Daughter is what great and lasting filmmaking is all about. Rex Reed, Holiday Magazine. Smash GM presents Robert Mitchum, Sarah Miles, and Christopher Jones in Ryan's Daughter, a story of love. Like any film by David Lean, it is a masterpiece. Dum, 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 dum. Ryan's Daughter now at the Ziegfeld Theater. Check newspapers for specific performance times. Once in a generation, man is privileged to glimpse the eternal glow in the sky of true art. That was the reviewer for the uh, Nantucket Jail Times. Dum, 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 dum. Very good. Uh, let's see, we have other commercials here for you. Hey, I'd like to have a commercial for me once. You mind? Uh, Tony, uh, 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 Jerry, please, take a look at the at the uh, records in there, and you will find uh, 50 great moments of fantastic music. I think Tony can arrange that. And while he's doing that, you get that set up. I'll give you another commercial. And it's a... Hey, no, not yet. Oh, oh no, it's stop. What's this? 
An unsigned editorial from a faceless writer once helped to shape our opinions. Television has changed that. In the current issue of TV Guide magazine, Richard Doan talks to the new breed of editorial writer, television style. On screen, speaking out on the issues of the day, television editorialists are easy targets for dissenting opinions. What's it like to live in a glass house of their own words? (laughs) An interview with television's editorial writers this week in TV Guide. Look for Hollywood's new breed of actress, Sally Marr, on the cover of TV Guide. TV Guide, New York's biggest-selling weekly magazine. America's biggest-selling weekly magazine. TV Guide, on sale everywhere. Yeah, I love those TV editorials. They're always so, you know... (laughs) And now, here is Charles W. Chowderhead speaking for the management of Channel 49. Well, uh, we believe here at Channel 49 that men should learn to love one another. We believe also in motherhood. And we feel that motherhood lately has not been getting its just dues. We know, of course, that this is a very uh, dynamic and certainly controversial editorial. But we are taking this stand fully in favor of motherhood. Dissenting opinions will be given an airing on this channel. This was another hard-hitting, dynamic, fearless editorial of Channel 6 SJ7. Oh, this is Shepard Crenshaw, Lawrence Groovy. Hey, that's great. Would you please give me a little echo chamber? Hello, test. Hello, test. Test. That stage performer, known for real, Gene Shepard, has consented to give a series of performances at the Fortune Theater. Friday night, tonight, Saturday night, tomorrow, and Sunday. You are privileged to be present. A magnificent human being. The critic for the Trenton Wolfie. This man says it for all of us. Harold W. Clotterman, the tobacco store at 41st and 9th Avenue. Gene Shepard live at the Fortune Theater. Be there, be there, be there. Thank you. Now playing at neighborhood theaters at popular prices. Uh, all kidding aside. <laughs> hey, that was kind of nice, wasn't it, Tony? It was real good. I am now at the Fortune Theater live for this weekend only. And I want to thank uh, the reviewer for the Times for the great review of the last week. The, the show has been held over. See what happened. We played last week, and a lot of people wrote in after it was over and said, how come, you know, 
they couldn't get tickets and one thing and another. It was filled up and so forth on the performances they wanted to come to. So we have been held over. And we're at the Fortune Theater, which is at, uh, gee, I don't have the address or anything. It's at 62 uh, East 4th Street. It's right off of 2nd Avenue. In other words, if you come down 2nd Avenue, it's a little bit to the west side of 2nd Avenue. And it's right down in the heart of the Off-Broadway Theater District. And if you want to give them a call, give this number a call. They will give you all the information on the ticket times and the whole jazz. And I've been having a ball down there. 777, that's New York, of course. 777-0030. Write it down. 777-0030. And we're having a... Uh, we're having a big uh, matinee tomorrow, Saturday, and we're also having one on Sunday. And so get on the shtick, friends. Dum -dum -dum. That's the Fortune Theater. Let's see. Uh, what have we got? We got the... Oh, yeah, hey, listen. Speaking of commercials, we got uh, our new one here, old Matt. And uh, I don't know of a place that's more uh, classically New York than Nat Sherman. Did you ever go down there? Tony, you know what it is, though. Matt Sherman is a great traditional classical tobacconist. And uh, they're down right here on 7th Avenue between 38th and 39th, roughly. Yeah, 38th and 39th. And the number is 1400, 1400 7th Avenue. And if you will observe me now, look me closely in the eye, you will see Shepard has a magnificent handmade pipe. And if you're thinking of laying in a Christmas gift or two, for your family, if you've got a guy around who smokes a pipe, man, they've got the greatest collection of pipes that I have ever seen down there, and they're beautiful. In fact, they 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 make they make them up themselves. There's a there's a couple of great artists who work there who make handmade pipes. This is made right there, and they're beautiful. And that's uh, old Matt Sherman. By the way, they have cigars that go all the way from five bucks a box to Seventh Avenue. It's on Seventh Avenue, Broadway. I'm sorry, it's Broadway. I keep thinking about 7th Avenue. It's 1400 Broadway. Yes, sir. 1400 Broadway. It's right down the street from the station here. It's 1400 Broadway. You know, another thing about them down there, do you, do you know that they have cigars down there that go $100 a box? <laughs> now, that's what I call <laughs> conspicuous smoke. That's uh, $100 a box. But they have fantastic pipes. Old Matt Sherman, and uh, they've been around for a long time, and they are at 1400 Broadway, between 38th and 39th, on the east side of the street. You can't miss it. It's a great place just to go and hang around. You know a lot of guys go down there just during their lunchtime and, and take deep breaths. Boy, that place smells like a Turkish you-know-what on Saturday night. Groovy. That's uh, 1400 Broadway, Matt Sherman. Oh, yeah, now we got to get back to uh, work here. I got uh, some work to do here. Very definite work to do here. Got a story to tell you. I was reminded of it. It's a terrible thing. I shouldn't admit this. Here it is, you know, just before Christmas. Speaking of Christmas time, whenever I get a little nervous these days, you know, everybody does. This, these are days of great stress, right, Tony? Right, right. And, uh, of course, one of the great things about... I can't remember ever in my life when people didn't say, these are parlous times. I cannot remember. I can't, my whole life, I can't remember any time in my life when people didn't say, oh, listen, uh, these are the worst times in history, man. 
I mean, man has never known such problems, right? And they were saying that at the time of Pluto. Who was Pluto? Well, he was the guy that worked for Plato. And, uh, yeah, well, yeah, a lot of people said that Plato was driven by the devil and uh, Socrates and all that crowd. They said the same thing. Things are getting bad. You remember when old, Soc old Socrates there? It's what the gang used to call him, you know. He's walking around on the, uh, at the, uh, the presidium there, the judge, and they're getting ready to, you know, make him drink the hemlock. And he's walking around. You should hear the complaining. Oh, what a quetch that was. I remember reading that. He really, he was the original Holden Caulfield, you know. Oh, he was a phony spotter par excellence. And uh, he walked around, complained. Of course, he considered himself fantastic, naturally, beautiful. And uh, <laughs> he walked around, pointed out all the ills of society, took a great big sip of that hemlock. By the way, where can you get uh, hemlock these days? I haven't heard of anybody. Yeah, well, I always read about guys, you know, committing suicide. They do it in such prosaic ways, you know, like jumping out of windows and stuff like that. It would be kind of, you know, really dramatic if uh, it says uh, Charles W. Watanabe took his own life last night after delivering a brief oration in his living room he drank deeply of a hand-hewn granite cup of hemlock there will be no flowers however <laughs> that, you know, that would give kind of a pizzazz to it do you uh, have my stuff ready in there tonally uh, whenever I get nervous at this time you know it's Friday and all you know, no telling what the weekend's going to bring uh, I always uh these days, the last week or so, my favorite bit of a slob art, I throw it on the old uh, kind of record player down in the office. See, I throw it on, and this is what comes out. Makes me feel good. You know, it makes me feel warm all over. All together, gang. Yeah, I sit there in my office and I sing along with the New York Giants. This is the New York Giants, you see. You can hear Tucker Fredericks in there carrying that high carrying there. Oh, what fun! Oh. <laughs> Thank you, Tony. That's enough of that. I got enough worries without listening to the giant singing Jingle Bells. Jingle Bells, Jingle Bells, Jingle all the way. That was the New York Giants singing Jingle Bells. It's enough to make you fetch, isn't it? Well, uh, tonight, uh, I shouldn't say... Oh, hey, listen, the uh, little note here. It's kind of sad here. The lady says, uh, Shepard, I'm impaled on the horns of a dilemma. Uh, I'm a dilemma. I didn't know that they still had them in this area. Yeah, I thought they were extinct. I'm impaled on the horns of a dilemma. That's, of course, the larger spotted dilemma, which is very prominent in the uh, Rhode Island area. No, this is Pennsylvania. It says, Dear Shepard, I have a chance to grasp, uh, to contact a fellow Shepard fan. It lies within my grasp, and yet therein lies the tale. Bum, ba -dum, bum. Upon reaching into our mailbox, which is located on a country road, what to my wondering eyes? Now you can imagine how this would feel to you, though. Now remember, you're, she's looking in the mailbox on a country road. She says, "What to my wondering eyes should appear in my mailbox but a torn chunk of tablet paper?" thumb stained and crumpled a bit of tablet paper with the simple inscription flick lips she said flipped she says and not only that Shepard this is not the first time that such a note has appeared in my mailbox they've appeared from time to time 
at irregular intervals. Well, she says, the, I figured that uh, I had found a way at last of communicating with another Shepherd fan. There, can't, there has to be another one in this area, another aficionado. So I penned a note. I wrote a note reading Excelsior, you fathead. And I carefully placed it in the mailbox. Needless to say, the mailman got it. <laughs> and ever since, he's been giving me these funny looks. You know the kind of humor. She seems the harmless type. Just get ready to run, though. She says, okay, Shepard, what suggestions do you have? How do I make contact? If you can think of some way to do this without having me wind up in the funny farm, I'd appreciate hearing it. There is another listener out here somewhere. And she lives in North Wales, Pennsylvania. Well, there's only six people in that town. Just a process of elimination. You could tell the Cousin Brucey fans, you know, by their sloping forehead. There's no problem there. <laughs> and you could tell the uh, Johnny Carson fans by the fact they got these big round eyes and bifocals. You know, and they talk with a Jaja Gabor accent. And we have a note here. A little thing came in from the WOR newsroom. And I just want you to listen to this. Because it reminded me of my own criminal past. You heard right. You're listening to a reformed criminal. A three-year-old boy was discovered to be the kingpin of a schoolboy housebreaking gang. A juvenile court in Nottingham, England. Now, who was it used to hang around Nottingham? Come on. That's right. Don't you remember the sheriff of Nottingham? Hey, did you know that they finally discovered that the sheriff, that the Robin Hood, uh, they've been doing a lot of research on the actual Robin Hood. And he didn't look like Richard Green at all. He was fat, and he was a terrible shot. This is a fact. And he was a local thug. He was a very early member of... You can't use the word mafia anymore in the air, can you? No, that, there's no mafia. No, that never existed. Uh, he... Uh, <laughs> rapidly rewriting history. <laughs> a la George Orwell. Anyway, this kid, three-year-old kid, the judge was astounded. The, uh, when he first heard of the toddler gangster, the shop judge, of course, this is England, could only ask incredulously, who said he's only three? Two boys of 13, one age 11, admitted being part of the gang. And they said the leader was this three-year-old kid. And he ordered them, this tiny accomplice, he ordered them to lift him up to the windows. You know, it would be a window maybe way up, ten feet up. These kids would lift him up, see, and he would go in to the window. And once inside, he would unbolt the doors to let him in. And he then divided the spoils, <laughs> which the boys said they used to buy cigarettes and a racing pigeon. That dude with a little style there. <laughs> they took household goods, clothing, cameras, and clocks, among other things. The court was told, and they sold these goods to a female relative. There's old Fagan there working there, you know. A female relative who gave them small sums of money. The mother of one of the boys said she first became suspicious, <laughs> and this guy was six, because his son was smoking heavily. It seemed to have a regular source of income. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, I'm going to tell you something. I, I shouldn't tell you this on a, on a, on a Friday night. I'll give guys ideas, but 
But, uh, you know, you can easily get sucked into a life of crime. You really can't. Temptation is on every hand. And when you're sucked into a life of crime, you don't really know you are until one day you hear the sirens and there's a lot of shooting in the middle distance and they're getting closer and closer and the next thing you know, they're barricading you. <laughs> well, you know, you're listening to a guy. I, I, I don't know whether I've ever told... I don't think I've ever told this story on the air. It's, uh, you know, it's one of the things you just don't talk much about. But you're listening to not only, a uh, at one point, a hardened criminal but one who got away with it. And it was nip and tuck, though, there for a minute. And uh, this is exactly what happened. Me and Schwartz, the flick and boner, you know how it is. <laughs> Every day, we're coming home from school, right? Well, you know how it is. And we'd come home from school, we'd walk down the alleys and pick up stuff and throw rocks at insulators and, uh, you know, that kind of jazz. And we'd, we'd invent games. You know, when you come home, you always invent the... Games would sporadically develop. I think the game-playing instinct in mankind is really one of the groovier sides of man. You know, what is it that makes us invent this whole fantastic thing called pro football? The, the, the bears don't, uh, you know, the, the leopards, the uh, giraffes and the squirrels. We, we, you can't see them, you know, throw, going back for a pass. Uh, <laughs> and uh, this is a man thing, people thing, games. And so we would invent these games. And they would consist of simple games, and they're traveling games. You remember traveling games, which would be, uh, somebody would see a can, see? And the next thing you know, uh, everybody's con uh, running down the alley, kicking his can. And whoever, uh, whoever kicks it the furthest is now in the lead. And uh, so uh, we'd, we'd, we'd just keep going. This is a male thing. I don't know whether girls did this or not, but males would always invent games. Or there'd be uh, games you'd invent with marbles that would be moving games that would take you towards your house. And so you just toss marbles ahead of you. And if you hit somebody else's marble, of course you got it. It's your marble. And uh, that, that used to be called lagsies. You ever play lagsies? And you just lag the nib along. Well, one day we're coming home, and uh, Schwartz said to Flick, I mean, there's little innocent things like this start the whole gigantic trains of, of uh, unforeseen consequences. I am. Uh, I would submit to you right now, since it is Friday night, and a lot of you are driving around in your Mercuries and stuff, that you are about to do an act, I don't know what it might be, that's going to stick with you for 45 years. You're going to meet a chick at a McDonald's. Maybe in the next five minutes. God knows where it's going to lead. I mean, recriminations, divorce court, gunshots, who knows, you know, where it'll go. And it is from these chain of consequences that whole lives are spun. Do you know how John Dillinger started? I bet none of you don't know that. Well, I'll tell you how he started. John Dillinger was a very straight guy, lived in this little town in Indiana. And uh, he'd been in the Navy. And he was uh, interested, he was a machinist, he was interested in that. He was just a young guy, he was 19 or 20, see. And one day, he's coming home from a buddy with a buddy of his. They've been down to the bowling alley or something. He loved to play baseball. He's a great shortstop. And uh, he really was. And, and he played on the minor league team in that town, the semi-pro ball club. And he and his buddy were coming home. And they see up ahead, they, and they had a couple of beers, and they see up ahead of him walking along a guy that they had both worked for who ran this little grocery store in town. 
This is fascinating you, isn't it? How Dillinger got started. This is an actual true story. And uh, they, they catch up with them. It's night, see? And they're both broke. They don't have any money, the two guys. And so John Dillinger said to this guy who ran the grocery store, Hey, uh, Henry, whatever his name was. Hey, Henry, how about giving us a couple of bucks? We, we want to get a couple of bucks here. How about giving lend us a couple of bucks? He says, No, I don't want to give you any money. And so the next thing you know, they're kind of shoving each other around. And uh, uh, the guy who was with Dillinger shoved the guy down into the bushes, and they're yelling and arguing. And finally, the guy says, all right, here, I'll give you a couple of bucks. And with that, he gave them a couple of bucks, and they went their way, back to the place where they were buying the beers. Well, Dillinger lapped up a couple of beers and went home. Didn't think anything about it. The next morning, there's a knock on the door. It is the sheriff. He says, what'd you do last night? You mugging old Henry? What do you mean? Oh, well, they dragged him off to the local can, he and his buddy. It's a true story. It's a very interesting story. They lugged him off to the can. And with that, when, when the guy down at the end of the street, the Henry, who was running the grocery store, heard about this, he got a style. He didn't know what these guys are going to jail or anything like that. See, they knew him. So he rushes down and says, let him go. It's all right. He says, no, no. We're going to make, we're going to make a uh, uh, case out of this. We're going to make a, uh, an example. We can't have this kind of stuff around. He got one year in the reformatory. And that started a whole scene. Now, all right. See how simple it is? So I'm, I'm me and Schwartz and Flick and Bruner are walking home, Indiana. And uh, Schwartz says to Flick, hey, you know, wouldn't it be great if we, if, if we, if we made a, a, a shack, our own little clubhouse-like? And Flick says, yeah. That's let's say uh, that's a great idea. Let's let's make a shack. And so we started to gather stuff. You know, walking down through the alleys, we'd pick up a big piece of tin that was laying there, or a five-gallon drum, and we'd pound it out and make it out of make the tin out of it. You know, and we started to build this shack in the woods. Well, it became very evident very shortly after we started to build that we needed building materials. So one day, Bruner says, "Hey." You know that, that that house they're building down there on Arizona Street? Why don't we go and get some nails where these guys, you know, they throw all these old nails away that they bent, see? And we'll pick up nails. And so we went down to this house they were building and we started to pick up nails. I mean, these were all thrown away nails. See how innocently it starts? And one day, picking up the nails, Schwartz sticks two pieces of tar paper shingles under his jacket. Which we tacked up on the side of our little house we are building. And, you know, it looked great. It looked better than the tin. With that, Flick says, hey, listen, why don't we go back there tonight and get a couple of two by fours? I mean, for the roof. I mean, they never miss them. They got a lot of two by fours around there. What do you say? So, nine o'clock that night, we sneak back and we come back with a couple of two by fours and we fill our pockets full of nails. We had like five dozen uh, tar paper shingles and a few other odds and ends. And it was at that moment that my life of crime began. Every couple of days, we are sneaking back in that house, and we are taking nails, pieces of two-by-fours, chunks of tar paper. We even started to take things like, uh, you know, little <laughs> odds and ends like uh, bricks, you know, like one of these big... Uh, uh, concrete blocks and stuff like that we just struggle back in the dark with it 
One night, after roughly a month of this, and our shack was getting to look really great, we have run out of two-by-fours that are on the ground. And now we are climbing up into the rafters, taking them off. See how gradually it happens? We are pulling them off, when all of a sudden down the street comes a pair of headlights. Well, Schwartz hollered, shh, hold it, be quiet. Alexis, what is it? Schwartz says, I just think it's a car going by, just don't move. The car got closer and closer, and suddenly it stopped right in front of this building where we were all hanging on the rafters. And three dark figures got out. And suddenly, the flashlights go on. And we see the flash of the silver badges. Well, I want to tell you, all four of us hit the ground running. We hit the ground with our feet spinning. Wow, we went. I remember running and running. And with that, squad cars come from all directions. It's a trap. They've been waiting for us. You can see these red U-lights. Oh, have you ever had the cops after you, honestly, after you? I mean, we could see ourselves for a year in the reformatory, you know, stealing stuff. We are running down the alleys, and I can remember running next to Schwartz, and I was running so much my gut was breaking. I, I was almost passing out. <laughs> and every time I would run down an alley, I would see at the other end of the alley, that red U-light, back up and over and under fences, over, back over, up, up in town, underneath porches, up and over fences and hedges. <laughs> now about one o'clock in the morning and it's all settled down we have escaped and we're laying under Schwartz's porch me and Flick and Schwartz and Bruner's sweat pouring off we didn't say anything for about an hour we just laid there and Bruner started to cry that moment, the four of us, without a spoken word, went straight. And I mean straight. I mean so straight that Schwartz took up teaching in the Sunday school. I joined the United Brethren basketball team. Flick became what they called one of the police's little helpers. Did you know, you ever hear of that? That's like the pal, you know, but he used to go down at the playground and work with little kids. Bruner dug a hole in the ground, didn't come out for two and a half years. Oh, yes indeed, friends. It is easy to become a hardened criminal. In fact, there's probably several listening to me right now. They don't even know who they are. Because, well, <laughs> they're all a company, uh... It's uh, got a lot of stamps. It doesn't need no stamps. That's all I could... Uh, yes. Who was it you used to say? Only the shadow knows the evil that lurks in the hearts of men. No, he said it another way. It was like this. Who knows the evil that lurks in the hearts of men? Yes, who knows what evil lurks in... That's right, that's a little more precise... <laughs> Who knows what evil works in the hearts of men? Only the shadow knows. 
for tonight. Kimo Sabi. And that's uh, used courtesy of the copyright owners, the Raider Corporation. We give them proper credit. We'd like to uh, thank Hugh Downs tonight for his assistance. We'd like to uh, thank the uh, Beauty Canova Fan Club of Babylon, Long Island for additional dialogue. We'd like to thank Priscilla Lane for her encouragement and without whose untiring efforts this program could never have come about. Don't forget the Fortune Theater. We'll see you tomorrow night at five minutes past ten, you sluggers. This is WOR in New York. It's 11 o'clock. News time with Lester Smith.